0: Let me read this for us. This is what God's Word says, beginning in Luke chapter 12, verse 4. Jesus said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before god why even the hairs of your head are all numbered fear not you are of more value than many sparrows and i tell you everyone who acknowledges me before men the son of man also will acknowledge before the angels of god but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of god And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we ask now for your Spirit to be the one to teach us that which you want us to know and that you would make us that which you want us to become. Help us to be a people who are holding fast to you in this generation of darkness and wickedness. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we return to Jesus's words here in Luke chapter 12 and here beginning in verse four, he gives a series of instructions that all tie into the issue of fear of man as it relates to one's public confession of Christ and remaining faithful to him. Now, for honest, we are all plagued by this penchant to be people pleasers and to dread the consequences of what people might think of us or do to us if we were to offend them. In any way, and some of us, by natural temperaments, are probably more inclined to this fear of man than others of us are. Especially if you are the conflict-averse type, uh, you you perhaps shudder at the thought of confronting anyone or being confronted by anyone. Uh, you do anything to keep the peace at any cost. I understand the struggle because uh, I am highly conflict-averse by nature, for better or for worse. And it may be that you are this way because you're a very tender-hearted person. You're highly sensitive to other people's thoughts and concerns. And that's a wonderful characteristic in and of itself. But we have to understand how deceptive our sinful hearts can be and how even that good quality of tenderness and sensitivity can easily err into a hypersensitivity to what others think of us. Going beyond the realm of being considerate of others to actually being in fear of others and idolizing their approval. Again, some of us, like myself, uh, we're more inclined to this than others, but whatever the case, it's true of all of us in varying degrees and uh, manners. And we all must understand that this fear of man is at odds with the fear of God. You can't have both. And if you let this fear of man control you and govern your thinking, then it'll inevitably and eventually drag you to its logical conclusion of denying and rejecting Christ. And so Jesus here is urging his people, don't be enslaved to this insatiable quest to please everybody. It's not worth it. And you can't even do it. You won't succeed. And it'll only lead you away from me. You see, the context of what Jesus was saying just before this and about whom he was saying it is very important. Because if you recall, having exposed the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and lawyers and their whole brand of religious leadership at the end of chapter 11, Jesus then turned to his disciples at the beginning of chapter 12 and warned them of being influenced by their religious hypocrisy. That's the first three verses of chapter 12. And then here in verse 4, he immediately continues by warning his disciples not to fear the threats of men, what can happen to them, even death. Now, why would he suddenly talk about this? What's the connection? Well, the obvious connection is that The religious leaders were so offended by what Jesus said at the end of chapter 11 that they were resolved to hunt Jesus down, again described in these predatorial terms in verses 53 and 54 of chapter 11. And so Jesus was now put in this position of increasing danger to his life, hence the shifting of gears to talk about not fearing those, even those who can kill you. So that's the obvious connection. But underneath this obvious thought connection is another important link which is that when you study what scripture reveals as the pattern and motives of the pharisees and the scribes and the whole gang you begin to see that a key impetus for their unbelief was how much they cared about what others thought instead of what god thought which is precisely what hypocrisy is isn't it caring more about the outer appearance which man looks at than the true inner heart which god looks at and so this fear of public perception and this need for public approval controlled their thinking and it led many of them to their spiritual ruin you know sometimes i think that uh, we we make such simplistic villains out of the unbelieving religious leaders during jesus's ministry now they were villainous, to be sure. But I think sometimes as we oversimplify it, we tend to forget that they were also human, which means that they had intricate thoughts, multifaceted layers of complexity to their psyche, all of which contributed to them thinking and acting the, the, the way that they did. And that is to say that these religious leaders who rejected Jesus... They didn't wake up one morning and were suddenly programmed to reject Jesus. No, they heard him. They witnessed all his signs and wonders and they processed it. They're, oh, That's really interesting. Oh, I, that, that would suggest this. That would imply this about Jesus. But something in their thought process took such precedent and dominated their motives to drive them toward eventually stubborn rejection and unbelief. And that something was this prevailing fear of man, specifically the fear of facing the ramifications of confessing Christ. Now, let me show you this in John chapter 12. Why don't you turn there with me? There are many places we could go to, to see uh, little windows of the thought process of the religious leaders. But I think perhaps John chapter 12 is the clearest window. John 12 is just before the cross Uh, John kind of zooms through Jesus's public ministry, uh, unlike Luke, who takes his time more and gives more uh, intricate details in different episodes. But John zooms through Jesus's public ministry and gets to the Upper Room discourse by chapter thirteen, which is just before the cross. And so, Jesus's triumphal entry uh, to Jerusalem is recorded in verses twelve to nineteen here in chapter twelve. And so, by chapter twelve, all three years of his public ministry had almost fully elapsed meaning there were ample opportunities for the crowds and jewish leaders to believe jesus for who he really is but here in verse 37 of john chapter 12 we are told that though he had done so many signs before them they still not still did not believe in him why Well, for one, this was foretold by the prophet Isaiah that many would harden their hearts against the Messiah who would come. And that's what John explains there in verses 38 down to verse 41. But notice in verse 42, it says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. Literally, many of the rulers. Now, this is not just talking about Roman government authorities, magisterial rulers. But this is referring to Jewish authorities, religious rulers, leaders, the Pharisees. Nicodemus was one of them. If you look back in chapter 3, verse 1, it says that Nicodemus was of the Pharisees, a ruler, an authority over the Jews. And so it turns out that many religious leaders, even of the Pharisaic bent, were inclined to believe in Jesus because the truth about him was undeniable. But how does verse 42 continue? It says, But for fear of the Pharisees, of their own, it's a dog eat dog world. For fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They fear the disapproval of their colleagues. They fear the consequences of being kicked out of the nice Jewish society, especially all the high rank as leaders that they worked for and all the reputation that they had to lose. Simply put, as John makes clear, they elevated man's glory, man's approval above God's approval. And so they ultimately denied the truth of Jesus, even though they were inclined to believe in that which was so obviously true. You see, the fear of man is directly at odds with the fear of God. Embracing him, trusting him, confessing him. This is why earlier in John chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus asked them this rhetorical question. How can you believe? You can't. But how can you when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? It's not possible as conveyed by way of that rhetorical question. And so the recurring lesson from Jesus' public ministry is that a thirst for worldly approval and acceptance will always lead you down the path of eventually abandoning the truth because the truth by nature is offensive to the world for whose approval you thirst and isn't this the exact same pattern that we see operative in the church today? I mean, just look at the trajectory of the last couple of decades. You don't have to look very far. The cultural landscape in the last couple of decades, it's drastically changed before our eyes. And churches that were determined to follow every cue and ideological trend of society have ended up chasing after the wind off a cliff. And many of them are so far gone now that all that's left is an external shell of a church. Just the mere outward vestige of a mere building adorned with rainbow flags and all the icons of cultural relevance. But they're spiritually dead inside. Pews filled with unconverted sinners. Pulpits filled with unconverted preachers. Why? Because they let the world define what is love what is kindness what is justice what is righteousness goodness tolerance compassion all in an attempt to garner their approval and not offend them and it turns out that if you play by those rules and you try to win some points well the rules are that you can't talk about sin anymore you can't talk about what's right or wrong You can't talk about absolute truth because we live in a postmodern society where truth is relative. It's about my truth versus your truth. By the way, postmodernism doesn't work when you go to the bank because the number that you see in your savings account is most of the times, unfortunately, the absolute truth. You can't say, well, my truth says there's extra zeros there. Society doesn't function with postmodernism. You can't talk about eternal realities of heaven and hell. You can't tell people that they are not good. Even though only when you understand that, then the true good news of the gospel begins to be understood. But you can't tell people that they're not good because the whole ideology that we're under as a society is that everyone is good inside. We're all good people. And there's no such thing as sin. They're just mistakes. I mean, how many times do you see in the media some celebrity says something that... They shouldn't have said and said, oh, that's not who I really am. No, that is who you really are. That's who we really are. We say the things that we say, we do the things that we do because that is who we are. Sinners by nature corrupt in our hearts for which we need rescue. Wholehearted salvation. But that's the rules. If you want to play the game, you can't preach the truth anymore. And now look at all of these Christian figures coming out and renouncing their faith. Really sad. You know, just four or five years ago, one prominent young evangelical pastor were formed in his theology, you know, preaching the sovereign grace of God and everything. He made headlines as he announced that he's stepping down from ministry. But well, not just that, but he's he's cordially leaving his wife because he has gone through a deconstruction of the Christian faith. Why? Why? Well, many reasons, but one of which is that he had risen to fame by writing books on biblical marriage and sexuality, but years later, as the pressure cooker of contemporary culture intensified, he felt that he had grievously offended those in the LGBTQ plus community and had taken part in spewing and spreading bigotry again Per the culture's definition of bigotry and hate speech. And so he walked away from everything. Walked away from the true Jesus of the Bible. Now it's easy to point fingers and scathe the man, but whenever we see something like this, and there are dozens of other examples just within the last five years that we could talk about, whenever we see this, first of all, we should be saddened and pray for such individuals. And secondly, importantly we should be wary of our own hearts to realize that we are capable of the same maybe not always in such drastic fashions but a little compromise here a little compromise there in order to maintain favor with the world to retain friendships to keep our jobs to to avoid the repercussions of sticking out like a sore thumb To to avoid having the world's condemnation that you're a bigot, that you're intolerant, that you don't care about justice, whatever. Look, no one is invulnerable to the fear of man. But we have to face the facts that it always comes at a cost. In order to hang on to the world, you must let go of Christ and leave him. And this is the great peril of the temptation to please the world. It's never-ending. And it's out of his loving protection for his people that Jesus says in verse 4 of Luke chapter 12, I tell you, my friends. I love how he begins that instruction. He's pleading with his disciples in love, not threatening them, but to strengthen them against those who would threaten them. He says, I tell you, my friends, Don't fear those who kill the body, and after that, they don't have anything more that they can do. But instead, fear the one who, after he has killed, he has authority to cast into hell. Fear him. Now, as we've seen with the Pharisees and Jewish leaders, the the fear of consequences is a strong motivator. And Jesus knows And so he's saying, look, I know it's easy to fear what people might do to you. Perhaps they'll be upset with you. Your relationship with them will be strained. You'll lose your reputation, your job, whatever it may be. So let's take the worst case scenario imaginable. What is the absolute worst thing that people can do to you? Well, what is the ace up their sleeve, the trump card to hold over your head as hostage to pressure you, into doing whatever they want you to do. What's the worst thing that can happen to you? Now, I hope no one is thinking that they'll unfollow me on Instagram. No, no, there's a lot worse things that can happen than that. The worst thing that anyone can do to you is to kill you. It's to take your life. Every earthly threat and perilous consequence converge and culminate to this single endpoint, which is death. it's the greatest thing everyone fears. And if you don't think so, then I guarantee you that you will not be thinking about your friendships and popularity and net worth when someone has a gun to your head demanding that you recant your faith. Those will be the last things on your mind. But Jesus says, look, if that's the maximum damage that they can do, don't you see how limited that really is? How temporary that is? Because first of all, there's nothing more that they can do afterwards. But secondly, all they can do is cause your physical body to perish. But that's what's going to happen anyway, isn't it? Whether or not they like you. Even if they like you, you're going to die anyway. We will all return to the dust at some point. And so why would you let yourself be controlled by this fear of what people might do to you when it's actually, if you think about it, an empty threat? They hold no final authority over you, but God does. He has authority over life and death and life after death. He has authority over eternity. He is the one you should fear. Now, at first, it may sound like Jesus' words here are very grim and intimidating, as though the spirit of what he's saying is, oh yeah, you're scared of people who can kill you? Well, guess what? I got worse news for you. God can not only kill you, but after he's, he's killed, you, he can kill you more. He'll make you burn in hell forever. So you need to be very afraid of God. Well, okay, it's true that God's punishment is eternal, but the point here is not that Jesus is fear-mongering his disciples, but that he's setting forth a juxtaposition of temporary consequences with eternal consequences. And the sense of what Jesus is saying here is nothing different than what he's already said before in Luke chapter 9. What good is it to gain the whole world but lose your soul? Because to gain the world, to gain their approval and acceptance, it comes at a price. You can't have both. And so why would you determine to to fear mere man who can only harm you bodily but can never take away from you the eternal blessing of knowing God and being in his presence forever. You see, fearing God is not this dreadful kind of fear that incites panic and paralyzes you with darkness and terror. And that's actually what the fear of man is like, isn't it? When you're afraid of man, when that fear strikes you, It makes your blood run cold. You're scared stiff, either into certain action or certain inaction. But notice how the fear of God is, in fact, our greatest comfort. It brings us the utmost peace. Because only then do we fear someone who actually cares for us. Verse 6. Jesus says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. You know, the sparrow was the most insignificant of birds and the least valued at the marketplace. I mean, they were a dime a dozen. It's like how you see pigeons all the time hanging out by the, on the telephone wires. I have no idea what they do all day, but they're just always there. And yet even such unnamed little birds whom we can hardly distinguish one from thousands of others like it. God has his eye on every little sparrow. Not a single one is forgotten by him. They're forgotten by man because they're negligible to us. But God knows everyone. And if God cares this much for such insignificant sparrows then how much more does he care for you who are of exceedingly more value than many sparrows? Not just one, but even many. Because you are created in his image. And if you are in Christ, he has redeemed you at infinite cost of his son. And he has adopted you to be his very own child into his household. And what an illustrative thought that all the hairs on our head are numbered by God. And even if some of you don't have much hair left anymore, God remembers exactly where and when each strand fell out. You don't remember. And you wish they didn't fall out, but he, he knows. And with all this in mind, Jesus says, strangely enough, even though he had just said, fear him who has authority to cast you into hell. He then says, fear not. See, it shows that when you fear God alone, you actually have true fearlessness because you're resting in his hands. Fearing God is is our greatest peace and comfort. You know, if you think about it, the reason why we fear people and what might happen uh, to us It's because we're afraid that it'll result in us being in this helpless state of unmet needs and being deprived of livelihood. For instance, perhaps you fear losing friends because you fear the possible outcome of being alone forever. Or you fear, let's say, speaking up at work because you fear that when people find out that you don't agree with whatever... Thing that they're doing that lacks integrity, or that you are proclaiming Christ in a hostile environment, that you fear that you won't get that promotion, or that you'll get laid off and not be able to provide for your family, and that you'll be left unemployed, so on and so forth. But here we are reminded that God cares for all of your needs infinitely more than any man can, and that you don't have to be in powerless dependence on having favor with the world to ensure that your needs are met you can trust that god always honors and takes care of those who honor him who walk in integrity and in truth in faithfulness to him even if the whole world were to turn against you god will see to it that you are provided for and that you will lack nothing as you live for his will You see, the fear of man produces produces dread because underneath that fear is the thought of if I disappoint this person or this group of people, if I don't play by the rules, if I don't agree with the world, that they will no longer love and care for me. That's a very conditional uh, love and affirmation. But here is God who actually and genuinely cares for you, who cares unconditionally and infinitely for all who are His. And so to fear such a perfect Father brings us peace and comfort. And the more we rest in this fatherly care of His, the more we then find ourselves strengthened with fearlessness that comes from the assurance of His provision and the protection. Listen, the world will only grow more hostile and more incompatible with biblical truth. It'll only get harder to please the unappeasable world and to find common ground with all the ideology that's deeply ingrained in the school system and media, corporations, government, everything. And so just make up your mind now to give up that impossible quest to win the world's approval. Just settle in your heart that in Christ. You don't belong to this world anymore. And you don't really be shown that you don't belong. But thank God for that. Because it means you belong to Christ and His kingdom. And just resolve to live your days standing firm for the gospel. For the truth of Christ. And this is the exhortation that Jesus gives in verse 8. He says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now, this is a weighty statement. And we can hear it in a very discouraging way. Because after all, who among us have perfectly, without fail, acknowledged Jesus, the Son of Man, before the public sphere, before our friends and family? And I'm sure as we read this, we immediately think of all the times in which we shrunk back in fear and fail to share the gospel with non-believers or even something so small as being ashamed to pray for a meal in public. And perhaps this fear of judgment weighs on us and we wonder if Jesus will remember all the times that we didn't acknowledge him before men and so he will refuse to acknowledge me. Now, don't get me wrong. Every time we shrink back in fear, we do and have dishonored him. And we have allowed in that moment for the fear of man to cloud our thinking and paralyze our faith. But if what Jesus meant here was that anyone who has ever denied me, I will deny forever. Then my goodness, there is no hope for any of us, much less the apostle Peter. Remember, he publicly denied Jesus in the most blatant and unforgettable way, even swearing with his life that he had nothing to do with Christ. But Jesus never denied him. Rather, Jesus pursued him, restored him, forgave him, and used him for his glory. And so how does that reconcile with Jesus' statement here of the consequences of denying him? Well, notice the context of this acknowledgment and denial and that it will be before the angels of god what this has in view is the final judgment day in the heavenly council of god before the tribunal of angelic witnesses that jesus will give final acknowledgement to some and final denial to others which tells us then that the denying and dishonoring of him that is in view here is not a single instance of failure and sin, but it is a lifelong, final rejection and denial of Jesus unto the very end. Jesus here is talking about unbelief, which makes sense because the whole context here, what Jesus was talking about earlier was regarding the Pharisees and their unbelief. And this is especially important to keep in mind when coming to verse 10, in which Jesus says, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, this is the famous unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin that Jesus talks about. And of course, the pressing question for us is what exactly is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, a sin? apparently so grievous that there is no forgiveness for it. And how do I know that I haven't committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, we can talk about this for a while, but to put it simply, we have to first ask, who is the Holy Spirit? And what is His ministry? What is His work? Because you see, to blaspheme means to slander and to defame, to revile someone. And Jesus says, amazingly, that even if you revile and slander me, there is forgiveness for such wicked sin. But not so if you do that against the Holy Spirit because he is the Spirit of truth who bears witness about the Son, as John fifteen twenty six says meaning that the Holy Spirit's work is to testify in the hearts of men that the truth of Jesus is really true, that he is really the truth, the life, and the way. And so to blaspheme the Son is to reject him and to revile him once, twice, even a hundred times as the Apostle Paul did before his conversion, as we all have in various ways. But to blaspheme the Spirit is to resist the truth of the Son unto the very end. It is to harden your heart against the testimony of the Holy Spirit in your heart unto the grave. To plug your ears forever. The very truth to which the Spirit is bearing witness. You see, it is a lifelong, persistent unbelief setting your whole spirit and life and mind and heart against Christ and the gospel stubbornly insisting on your suppression of the truth to the grave and this is what Stephen meant the first martyr in Acts in his sermon in Acts chapter 7 when he said to the unbelieving Jews he said in verse 51 you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears you always resist the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It is a persevering unbelief and a denial of the truth of Christ unto the end. Now, if you think about it, the theology of the unforgivable sin is actually an amazing display of God's grace. Because it shows that there is no sin for which you cannot be forgiven. There is no sin, no matter how wicked or vile it may be, that takes a sinner past the point of no return. The only point of no return is when a sinner refuses to turn to Christ to the end. That's what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is talking about. And the only sin for which there is no forgiveness of sins is the sin of rejecting the free offer of the forgiveness of sins all the way to the grave. But while sinners are still alive, there is opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent of their sin and put their trust in Christ. As Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You see, there is always the hope of repentance because God will never refuse those who turn to him. Only those who refuse to turn to Him will remain in the guilt of their sin. You cannot be forgiven only if you insist on remaining unforgiven, you see. And if you're here this morning and you have not believed in the truth of Jesus Christ, in His death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, do not leave this world unforgiven. Do not leave this building today unforgiven. Today, if you hear his voice, if you hear his spirit testifying in the conscience of your heart, of the veracity of the gospel, of your need for the forgiveness of sins, then do not harden your heart. Do not blaspheme the spirit of God. Don't resist the truth confess your sin and entrust yourself to Jesus and what he has done on the cross to rescue sinners like you and me this is the unfailing hope of the gospel and all who have turned to Christ are secure in him forgiven of all their sins belonging to him forever you see church Jesus is not saying these words here to make Christians doubt their salvation. But but the purpose of these words is to magnify the power of his grace and to underscore the blessing of having turned to him by faith and to point his disciples to the reward of holding fast to him until the end. That is to receive Jesus' acknowledgement and commendation on the last day before the throng of angelic hosts in the presence of the Father. And I promise you that there is nothing better than the acknowledgement that you will receive from the Son of Man when it's all said and done. It will make every costly sacrifice, every pain, every scorn, every loss, a thousand times worth it. And you will be so glad that you feared God, you kept the faith, and you finished the race. And whatever gain you had, or whatever gain you would have had in this world, that you counted as lost for the sake of Christ, you will be very, very glad on that day for having given it all up. Now it's a hard journey to be sure. It's not easy to withstand worldly pressures because we're weak. But take heart with the promise that Jesus gives in verse 11. He says, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This promise was originally for his immediate disciples in the first century as they would suffer much persecution for proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. And we see this promise fulfilled in Acts chapter 4 among many other occasions as there we see the cowardly Christ-denying Peter standing before the council of Jewish high priests and the scribes and the other rulers and elders. And it says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by God, and boldly proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, and risen. And this same promise extends to all His disciples today, including you and me, the promise of His Spirit's empowerment and abiding presence in the hour of standing trial before the world as a witness, whether in this big, public, drastic fashion or in the small ways of testifying of the gospel To your friends, to those around you. And Jesus tells us don't worry when the hour of crisis comes to testify of me. I will help you in that moment. I won't leave you to yourself. My spirit will guide your words. And what a comfort that is. Because one of the greatest hindrances to publicly witnessing Christ is feeling inadequate. Isn't it? Not knowing what to say, and so maybe it's better just to stay quiet. And I'm sure many of you have felt discouraged in what you feel is a severe inability to be an effective and clear witness of the gospel. I have felt that way, and I still feel that way many times. And you'd be surprised, that's how I feel every Sunday morning when I wake up before I have to preach. My goodness, this morning I woke up and I thought, what day is it? Oh, it's Sunday. Oh my goodness here I go again another week another sermon Lord help me but Jesus is saying here you only need to be faithful and stand firm it's not that he'll dictate words to you and take control of your mouth as though he were a ventriloquist but the promise here is that he will use us in spite of our inadequacy and shortcomings to proclaim his glory in the gospel. Far beyond what we could have imagined or anticipated. Even using our struggling words. He will use them providentially. Have you considered? At the times in which you have shared the gospel with those around you. And you found yourself going, Oh, that is, you know, some Jesus, that cross. But that in your fretting and in your frenzy, You happened to say a certain word, a certain verbiage that you chose. That the Holy Spirit was superintending that process. Not in an inspired kind of a way, but that He was overseeing that providentially. And perhaps those words and even your manner was exactly what the person needed to hear to get a sense, a particular glimpse of the angle of the gospel that would hit the pressure point of their soul God uses us not only in spite of our inadequacies and weaknesses but he leverages our weaknesses now think about the apostle Paul I know we tend to think oh my goodness Paul he wrote most of the New Testament letters he is a legendary preacher missionary teacher evangelist Wouldn't it be nice to have Paul as our pastor here? I mean, the guy's an inspired apostle. I would be fed so well. I would grow so much in sanctification. But actually, you know, if the apostle Paul were to be the regular preacher of our church, chances are many of you would fall asleep. Which makes me feel a little bit better when I put some of you to sleep. I guess I'm in good company. But the reason is because, believe it or not, Paul was not an eloquent man. Paul was a very poor public speaker. He knew it. He was aware of it. That's why he tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2:3, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Gee, it sure sounds like Paul had stage fright. He stuttered, and when he talked, people would say, What? Huh? What is is he saying? He wasn't impressive by any means in his oratory skills and eloquence. And Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians 11.6 that he was a man unskilled in speaking. Now, why did God choose this babbling, nervous wreck to be an apostle to the nations? Because as Paul says, It says, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's a lesson that God would continue to teach Paul that my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Church, God has not made it difficult to stand for him and proclaim him to the world. Don't let your inadequacy discourage you. Instead, learn from Paul who learned to say, I will therefore boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Let this promise strengthen and embolden you to hold fast your confession of christ and to make known your confession to the world and may god help us to be a church that fears him alone and stays faithful to him until the day that we stand before the son of man and we hear the gracious words of his approval his acknowledgement and his welcome into his presence let's pray together Our gracious God and Father in heaven, thank you for the sufficiency of your gospel and not only saving us and rescuing us from our sins, but that you have sent your Spirit into our hearts to dwell in us, to be with us, to guide us, to teach us, to sanctify us, and to empower us to be the holy people set apart from this world that you have called us to be. We thank you for your comprehensive provision for us. And we thank you for your mercy in being so acquainted with our weaknesses that you have not left us to ourselves. And we ask that you would help us then to stand firm in the gospel and to cling to Christ our Savior who gave himself for us and we thank you for giving to us this sacrament of the Lord's Supper by which we proclaim his death through the bread and the cup. And we are reminded that this is who we are, your people purchased by his blood and that we are those who proclaim his death until he returns. Thank you for purchasing salvation for us and we ask that you would set apart these ordinary elements of the bread and the cup and use them to minister to us and to strengthen the weakness of our faith and that you would feed our souls by it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.